This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about, what else? The global coronavirus pandemic. When this pandemic first hits the U.S., there were problems with testing. Not enough people could get a test. It was hard to figure out how quickly the disease was spreading. Fast forward to now, today, there still isn't a national testing plan. We'll go into how concerned you should be about that. And, you know, much of the surge of cases... Parts of the country, like here in Los Angeles, driven by younger people, but many of them are still ending up in the hospital. We'll get into why. Hydroxychloroquine, remember that? Is oh, yeah, I remember, back. I remember that. And apparently this time, it's good news. So we'll oh. talk about that one. The coronavirus is creating a bankruptcy wave. So we will get into how big it is and who's hurting the most. The Payment Protection Program, PPP. The goal was loans from the government to help small businesses survive the pandemic. But turns out the rich and the connected, they got some of the help. But did they really need it? If you shop, and you probably do, the whole experience is different now than before the pandemic. But will the changes be permanent? Please stand on the pink X on the floor. (laughs) Let's start with the COVID testing. Still a problem six months into this. Dr. Giannis Benamore, microbiologist, executive director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. So, doctor, what's wrong? Let me set up the stage with just a few numbers um, that will help you understand where we are. So we have as of today, identified around 2.9 million cases of people who uh, either currently have COVID or have COVID. But experts are thinking that this number may be 10 times more. There could be actually 30 million Americans who either have COVID right now or have COVID in the past. Since we started testing in March, uh, we went from zero tests on March 1st uh, to 27 million tests now. And it is true that makes us the country that has tested um, the most in the world. But it's not actually the metric that we should be looking at. Uh, On a daily basis in the United States, we test around 500,000 to 700,000 people, which is not enough. Uh, If you look at the level of infection, uh, experts have actually uh, identified that in order to diagnose effectively everybody, we should be testing between one to 10 million people every day. Uh, And most experts think that that number should be between three and five million. So that means that we are at about 10% of what we should be testing. Um, And the other way to look at it is the positivity rate. So in New York City, we had the notable epicenter of the pandemic back in March and in April. Uh, Right now, our positivity rate is about one to 2%, uh, which is quite good. But there are other states whose positivity rate is about 20, 26% or 15%. So that means that clearly they're not testing enough. So the so, number, just I want to jump in because the number that you say we should be at, how realistic is that to reach if we had done things differently? And when would we have needed to do those? Was that one of the points of the lockdown was to ramp all this up? Correct. So one of the things that we should have done, and definitely New York City has done quite well, is to ramp up and put in place uh, effective systems so that when we actually open, and we open at the right time, when the number of infections are low, um, you, you would try to prevent a, a second wave. So last time you had me on the show was around May 1st, and then you asked me, are the states ready for opening? And I told you no. I told you no because uh, a lot of the states still had too many cases uh, their infection was going up or was, was stable. 
So they weren't actually finding all of the cases that they were supposed to. Um, and now that has led since Memorial Day uh, literally to an explosion of cases in states like Louisiana or Florida or Texas. And so the system is stretched. Um, there, there is a problem of capacity. Uh, and think about the fact that this is not like testing for blood group. Once you do the test, blood group, you know that's not going to change. You, you are A, you are O. Uh, COVID positivity, can, you could do it every three days, and at some point your uh, test result is going to change. Um, in, the, in the context of New York City, for example, we don't have that anymore because uh, our positivity is between 1% and 2%, so the likelihood of getting infected right now in New York City is quite low. So if you do a test once, uh, you should feel comfortable that you don't have to do it again after three days. But in a context like Florida or Texas, you don't know. If you go out, you go to a bar, you go to a restaurant, you may, or you go to a beach, you may be infected. And so the, the negative test of today uh, may mean all nothing right, so, next week. All right. So here, but I guess what it comes down to now is, is this fixable or are we just hopelessly lost? Sure. So let me tell you about the problems. The problem has to do with the fact that um, there are still shortages of supplies in the laboratories. Uh, laboratories are saying that they don't have enough swabs, they don't have enough reagents, and if you are a laboratory and you are running out of a supply, then all of a sudden you cannot do any of the samples, and that in return leads to these delays that, that are being reported. People are waiting for three, five, seven days. Um, so some of the scientists have come up with a solution, which is to say, why don't we just pool the samples? So instead of using one test for one sample, we could pool samples, let's say 10 together. Uh, and if the result is negative, that's great. So you have actually saved nine tests. You could do this in a context like New York because our positivity rate is low. But in a context like Florida and Texas, this becomes difficult because if you have a positive, then you have to test each of the sample again and you end up uh, wasting time. Surprisingly, this may come as a, as a shock, but not every test can be run in every lab. And this is a problem. You need to have the right machine, you need to have the right equipment, and you need to have the right lab technicians trained. To so, run. so, wait a minute. So, so to just, sorry to cut you short, but so the, really the answer to my question is yes, we are lost. <laughs> the second version, yeah. Yes. So uh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think that the states did not use the time of the lockdown adequately unfortunately. And the fact that there isn't a federal response right now is really hurting us. So you will see states uh, are actually fighting on the global markets to get those supplies and to get those reagents, um, when really, if there was a federal system, we wouldn't have to deal with that. Yeah, and they could split it all up. Dr. Yanis Benamor, microbiologist, executive director of Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University. Doctor, thanks for coming back. Younger people are driving this recent spike in cases, and that can be attributed to going out with many of the lockdowns lifted. But despite being younger, many of them are not handling this virus well, and are ending up in hospitals. So why is that? Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, Chair of Epidemiology, Biostatistics at UC San Francisco. So, Doctor, we were told at the beginning of this that if younger people got infected, almost all of them would be okay, but apparently not. To be frank, it's always been known that, um, that uh, one could land up in the hospital with severe, severe COVID-19 illness no matter what your age. We've had cases of that um, reported in other countries and reported in other parts of the country that have been ahead of us in the pandemic. So it's not surprising that we see this. What is the case now as we've reopened is that our cases are in people who are younger in age than earlier on in the pandemic. That's because of what you just said, they're in bars, but also probably because they're out working and being out working also exposes you more to the virus 
some number of healthy people end up in the hospital, and some number of young people actually have the types of comorbid illness that makes them at risk for more severe disease. So it's just kind of a numbers game if you have, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent of those 18 to 40 now making up whatever cities share of the positive infections. And a certain percentage of those are going to end up in the hospital just because that's the way this goes. A certain percentage of people are going to get a bad case. Yeah, that's the way I think about it. I mean, the important thing to know is that um, is that really the virus can can affect people, infect people in every age group. And although the severe cases um, are more likely to happen as people are older, it certainly can happen when people are younger, especially if they have another comorbid illness. Um, the important thing here is everybody needs to be vigilant about the virus. None of us can let our guard down. Everyone needs to do the things that they need to do to keep themselves safe and their neighbors safe, and all of us safe during the pandemic. And that is especially true as we're opening up, and we have more younger people really out and about in the world being more exposed to the virus. You know, you mentioned that that in many cases, the younger people who are in critical condition, it's because they have some of the same comorbidities as older people. I, I suppose that means uh, asthma, diabetes, things like that. But, of course, there's that subgroup, which you also mentioned, of health, otherwise healthy young people, is there some common thread, one would think there, there must be, that ties those people together, why they are getting critically ill when most do not? Yeah, I can tell you, um, I'm here at UCSF, and I can tell you our scientists and our intensive care doctors will tell you every day they are learning more and more about this virus, and they are um, they have a lot of respect for it because it acts um, both in ways that we know and ways that we're still learning. Um, and it's pretty clear that um, both the virus itself as well as the immune response the body has to the virus um, can lead to severe complications. Um, they are more rare, um, but they can they have been happening in young and otherwise healthy people. And so I think we have to have a fair amount of respect to um, to what the virus can do and know that we're still learning all of the things that the virus can do. Dr. Kirsten Bibbins-Domingo, Chair of Epidemiology, Biostatistics, University of California, San Francisco. Remember hydroxychloroquine? Well, first it was good, then it was bad, then it was good again, (laughs) then it was bad again. Now, maybe it's good. New research shows it can help. Yeah, how important are these new findings? With us is Dr. Stephen Kalkanis, Chief Academic Officer of the Henry Ford Medical Group in Detroit. They did a study on hydroxychloroquine. So, Doc, what did you find and how significant is it? So, in, in thinking about hydroxychloroquine, it's obviously been in the news uh, quite a bit, obviously. And uh, our study looked at 2,500 patients who were at our health system uh, from March to, to May during the, the peak of the pandemic here in Detroit. You know, we were a very hard hit region of the country. And the drug cut the death rate in half. Uh, we, uh, we looked at all types of uh, patients coming in and all types of responses, and it turns out that uh, 26% of those patients uh, who did not get the treatment with hydroxychloroquine passed away versus 13% uh, who were given the drug. So we, we feel it's quite significant. So why do you have different results than some previous studies? Is it because of timing when the drug was given? Is it dose? Is it the, the uh, severity of illness that the patient has, a combination? What? 
Well, it's a great question. Uh, believe me, we've had uh, teams of people uh, looking at this and, and trying to answer that question for, for many days and weeks now. And we feel the answer is, uh, <clears throat> is a multifactorial one. One, um, our, our drug was given uh, within hours of admission. Ninety percent or so of our patients received hydroxychloroquine uh, within a day or two. That's a lot earlier than a lot of other studies gave their drug. The reason we feel that's important is that the immune system, when it's, uh, when it's spurred on by an infection like COVID, sometimes can have an overwhelming inflammatory response. It's called a cytokine storm. That can overwhelm uh, a body and certainly uh, those that have a pulmonary process in their lungs. And um, we gave this drug before that immune uh, storm kicked in. And we think that that could make a lot of difference for patients. The other thing that we did differently is that we gave uh, a very different dosing regimen. Many other studies gave uh, the drug in a, a really, really high dose, in fact, uh, higher than what has been uh, published before in terms of safety profiles, and so we feel that that may have led to, to more side effects. The third thing is that we screened very carefully uh, for patients who may have had pre-existing illness and especially cardiac disease. And so um, by identifying patients who we felt would do the best, uh, th that's how we, we structured our study. So, again, giving the drug earlier, making sure that there was no cardiac history, and, and giving a slightly lower dose, uh, for, for us, that, that made the difference. Uh, did, with these did you give it in conjunction with something else, or is it just a hydroxychloroquine? Great question. So this study looked at several different combinations. Uh, there was an arm that had hydroxychloroquine alone. We also had a combination therapy with azithromycin, another drug, uh, and then uh, we looked at actually azithromycin alone and then no treatment. At the same time, some patients were given steroids, which independently we've shown uh, can, can also help with outcome, but we stratified the results to uh, isolate the effect of hydroxychloroquine apart from the steroids, and even with that analysis, it showed a benefit for the hydroxychloroquine. So uh, in any arm that hydroxychloroquine was given, patients did better, but Interestingly, they did the best when it was just hydroxychloroquine alone. The azithromycin and other combination therapies uh, did better than no treatment, but still not as good as uh, the hydroxychloroquine alone. If you came down with COVID, would you take it? Well, in the context of a clinical trial, based on our study, I would, yes. And, 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 and it's important to note that all of these drugs should be taken in the setting of a trial so that we can monitor for side effects in real time, that we can monitor the dosing, and that we can screen patients appropriately to, to have the best results. Dr. Stephen Kalkanis, CEO, Chief Academic Officer, Henry Ford Medical Group, Detroit. The economic hardships from this pandemic continue. Lots of stores and corporations declaring bankruptcy. Which ones will recover and which will close down operations for good? Bruce Grosgal is a business bankruptcy law professor at Widener University Delaware Law School. He talked to KYW's Matt Leon about the near future of business finances. The wave of corporate bankruptcies likely already has begun. Uh, Chapter 11 filings were up about 50% in May uh, over May of last year, with an especially high rate of filings by large companies. Uh, and I expect that this wave will continue to rise before it breaks. Uh, the pandemic has decreased the revenues and increased the operational costs of most businesses, both large and small, in all sectors of the economy, uh, and can be expected to do so for the foreseeable future, unfortunately. Uh, eventually, the arithmetic just doesn't work. The company doesn't have the cash uh, to pay its lenders and other creditors, and they threaten to legal action, or the company can't make its payroll. 
uh, and chapter 11, 11 becomes the best course of action for the distressed company to preserve its business. With regards to this wave, do you think it's going to accelerate? Are we going to see more here as we get into third quarter and, and move towards the fall? Or do you think the worst is over or, or is it kind of too hard to tell? Well, I don't have a crystal ball and I've been wrong lots of times uh, when I've tried to predict things, but I expect that this wave will continue for quite a while, unfortunately. Have you been surprised over what you've seen over the last couple months or given all the trends that were already in place? And I know a disruption like this tends to accelerate those trends. Have you seen about what you thought you'd saw or has the number of companies that have filed Chapter 11 actually surprised you a little bit? I'm not surprised. I think there are two different issues here. One is that we were at the end of a, of a business cycle where um, a lot of companies had borrowed a lot of money. Some sectors were already in trouble, uh, including uh, oil and gas, but also some medical facilities, I think, were trying very hard to make ends meet. The pandemic is a factor which, on top of those other kinds of structural issues, is going to wreak some havoc. Uh, and I think it's beginning to do that. There was a period of time, I think, where everyone um, stood down to wait to see how this was playing out. Uh, but again, the, the May filings indicate that that period is probably coming to an end and the filings are starting to pick up. Is it safe to say it's going to take 10, 15 years to be able to get a proper picture of the economic damage that this moment we've, we're living through right now has wreaked? I don't think so. I think we already see it. Uh, we see it in the unemployment numbers, and we're starting to see it now in the corporate filings. And I think with the uh, the the with the expiration of the uh, rent moratoriums and the mortgage foreclosure moratoriums, we're going to start seeing it there too. I think, you know, I'm not an economist, but I think it's pretty clear that the effect of this is 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 hard on people. Uh, it's hard on business. It's hard on people. Where I think we'll revisit this is what did we do? Uh, did we do what we the best that we could have done uh, to um, maximize an economic recovery in the face of the worst pandemic in 100 years, I think. So that's what we'll probably debate, unfortunately, for a long time to come. Larger businesses and the rich and connected have benefited from the government's payment protection plan. A small sampling showed money went to the family business of Transportation Secretary Lane Chow, several businesses connected to Jared Kushner's family, Kanye West's Yeezy Apparel Company, to name just a few. Even the SETI Institute, which searches for aliens and extraterrestrials, they got some money. What do they need money for? Well, the aliens might have a vaccine. Oh. Okay. They could fly it over to us. <laughs> yeah. Neil Borofsky is with us. He served as the Special Treasury Department Inspector General, oversaw the TARP program from 2008 to 2011. So, Neil, you warned us that this was going to happen, and it did. So, congratulations. Yeah, I hate this is one of those times where I, I hate being right. Um, but look, you know, they rolled out a program with no oversight and minimal transparency. And if you combine those two things with free money, you're going to bring out the worst. You know, the greed, the hypocrisy that is just, just you know, the list that you gave is only a small portion uh, of what companies did here. And companies that pretty clearly didn't need the money, uh, law firms that have partner profits per partner in the you know two to three million dollar range 
uh, you know, nonprofits who are dedicated to objecting to government handouts, like uh, the Ayn Rand Institute or, or, or Grover Norquist's organization, all lined up with the tin cup, all happy to take uh, the, the free government money. And it, it's a pretty disgraceful day, I think. So, uh, since I, I don't think any of us are naive here, uh, is that the way these things are sort of written when, when these laws are, and, and programs are established, that they sprinkle you know, smaller amounts of money to others so that people kind of look in that direction, while if you turned your head and looked in the other direction, you would notice that the vast amounts of money were going to people who really didn't need it. Look, I don't, I don't think that is the rule by any means. I think that here, and it's understandable, that, you know, they pushed this money out as quickly as possible and wanted to reach as many small businesses as possible, and there is no doubt that by doing so, uh, by opening the gates as wide as open as possible, uh, that a lot of small businesses got really important help and are alive today because of this program. And, and none of the criticism can take away from that. But, you know, when you use the tools of good governance, of oversight and transparency, you can limit the amount of slippage or the amount of money that is lost, right? Because this is, in some ways, if money goes to a completely undeserving business that didn't need the money, that wasn't going to lay off people anyhow, or even worse, didn't qualify for it, um, you know, that's just money that's taxpayer money that is gone, right, and gone forever. And, and that's why transparency is so, is so important. And, look, there's a reason why they, the Treasury Department waited so long to disclose these names and only went under a tremendous amount of pressure. And they've only disclosed a small fraction of the total number of names uh, and why they waited so long until after the, the program just got reauthorized is that it, it sort of deprives the debate over how this program is running. I mean, imagine the difference in the legislation if we knew who was getting the money as the money was going out. And then Congress can react, the you know, policymakers can react, and put in types of restrictions and conditions to avoid this from happening over and over again. Uh, but when you're afraid of bad news and you're afraid of bad publicity, when you put those concerns over good governance and efficient programs, this is exactly what comes out. And so it's, what we, is painful is, is this was avoidable. Do we trust them, though, to act that fast and, and act the way they're supposed to? Because the, the other argument is that it has to be a blunt instrument just to let everybody apply because you can't you got to do it quickly. And that's the reason a whole bunch of you know people who passed away got the stimulus checks because they just sent the money out as fast as they could. And even if they tried to get everybody's names, it would, it would take forever. I think in the initial go for, forward, yes. Uh, but the whole point is that when you do that, when you do a program like that, it is incumbent upon the government officials to be able to change it on the fly. So you need to get things out right away. But once you get start getting data back, once you start understanding the failures, you have to be nimble enough to change program requirements if you're seeing less than optimal results. If you're seeing that, oh, here's something we could have put in but didn't put in, now let's put it in going forward, Right. But look, part of it also just relies on people to be to act in an ethical way, uh, to put their reputation, you know, care enough about their reputations uh, that they wouldn't put, you know, risk them for for a free government handout. And I think one of the things that's sort of remarkable about this is the shamelessness, you know, of members of Congress, of cabinet level officials, families, business, um, you know, really, really rich, prominent law firms, including the the president's own lawyer, just, you know. Reputation be damned, they're taking the money. Neil Borofsky served as a special Treasury Department inspector general, oversaw the uh, TARP program 2008 
to 2011. How will shopping change once the pandemic is over? Will there be a wave of traditional brick-and-mortar stores closing down for good? Heard earlier from KYW's Matt Leon also talks to Barbara Kahn, marketing professor of the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, about the current and future shopping trends. Some of the experts are questioning whether or not people will revert back to old habits once we get back to normal life. One of the things that, and this is obvious to anyone, but there has been some quantification of this and and data that supports this is what people are calling an acceleration to digital. So obviously when physical stores are closed and people literally can't go into physical stores, but they want to buy things, you're going to see a lot more e-commerce behavior. And some of the experts have documented this and they've suggested that we've seen an acceleration to digital commerce by two to three years which means we thought that people would be buying more and more online over time. But the numbers that we're seeing currently were things that we weren't predicted to see for a couple of years yet, but we're seeing them now. So in a, in a couple of months, we've accelerated the movement to digital commerce by two to three years. Are there any trends that you've noticed, read about that have surprised you in the retail industry? Well, I mean, a lot of these trends aren't really that surprising, but it's nice to see documentation. I mean, if you're sitting home and you're thinking about this, which I guess everybody is, you can kind of estimate based on your own experience what you'd expect to see. And some of that actually is true. So, like, first of all, we know that in the beginning months of COVID, the only retailers that were literally open were the essential retailers and primarily grocery and and drugstores. And so we've been monitoring behavior in those in those retail establishments and some of the trends we saw, I don't think these would be surprising, but we do have evidence of it, is that consumers or shoppers were making fewer trips and buying more per trip. So that would suggest that people, not unsurprisingly, were like reluctant to spend a lot of time in these physical stores for fear of what they might catch or or something like that. So when they did go, they tried to get in and out quickly. We also saw, obviously, because restaurants and a lot of initially the fast food stores were closed, we also saw some differences in what people purchased. Um, People were purchasing more grocery. One of the things I thought was the most interesting is that we were seeing a lot more purchases of these legacy consumer packaged good products. So for a while, we had been observing before COVID a decrease in market share in some of our beloved consumer packaged good products, especially around here locally, like Campbell's um, or, or the other ones like Kraft or some of those, we had seen decreases in market share as, as the younger consumers were purchasing different types of brands. But under COVID, when you were restricted to buying brands in your grocery store and you couldn't go out to restaurants and some of these things were harder to get, we saw a, a, a big boon in some of these leg- legacy brands. So Campbell's was a big winner here, Oreos, big winner. Some of those legacy brands, the market share of those products went up in initial COVID months. Whether or not these brands will be able to keep that market share gain when people can shop more freely, you know, that remains to be seen. The virus doesn't discriminate when it comes to who it attacks. It can get anyone, no matter how rich or powerful. Britain's prime minister already had it, and now another leader of a country has tested positive. This time, it's the president of Brazil. This comes 
after he spent months downplaying the entire thing. He says he was treated with hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin as he waited the results of his fourth COVID-19 test in four months. He says he's feeling well and that the effect of hydroxychloroquine was immediate. That is, by the way, the drug President Trump has uh, used, and it's also uh, what we were talking about with that uh, doctor from the medical center earlier in the podcast. Yeah, we hope you're feeling well. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. I still don't get why the people that search for life on other planets needed more federal money. I'm telling you, the aliens can help us. But does that mean our tax dollars are headed to another planet? Well, maybe they'll just take us off this rock onto theirs. Ah, Oh, then it's worthwhile. It's an escape plan. (laughs) 